Hello everybody and welcome back to the God Complex podcast, a season of the Ivory Tower podcast series. Uh, today in episode 7 we will be discussing a movie called Wrist Cutters, a love story, and a book by George Saunders called Lincoln in the Bardo. Okay, so Wow, oh boy, geez. It has been a very long time since my last episode. I think about four or five months. I'm learning not to feel bad about things like this, so long as I'm still meeting the goals I set for myself responsibly, which, you know, part of my goals are making sure the two listeners of this podcast get occasional content. So in that way, I'm failing a little bit. But what happened was I... I wanted to spend all my time working on a uh, screenplay for a contest and I cut most everything else out and it was a good learning experience uh, they didn't like the screenplay <laughs> but when I came out of it I was behind on so much that I've been playing catch-up for yeah four months and counting uh, and then I joined another book club and this book club reads way too fast so mostly the catch-up consists of consuming media and I think another contributing factor is that I've been keeping earlier hours. It's really strange for someone who's always fancied himself a night owl, but getting up early has helped in a lot of ways with uh, mood. And I think really for productivity, I just have to kind of take what I used to do late at night and then just move it to the early morning. But in any case, my circadian rhythm is actually the topic for the next entire season of this podcast. So just you wait for that. Uh, kidding, of course. Although I'm probably going to cut the last episode of this season, which was pretty tentative anyway, and stop after the next episode, uh, episode 8, the one where I get to talk about Hellraiser. Then the next season, the, the third season of the Ivory Glower podcast, will be something totally new. I mean, as much as that can be true of a person who has a few pet topics he loves repeating observations about, and I have to admit, and you may have noticed, that I'm a little bit less thorough in this season as I went along. I think I've been losing a little bit of steam on the topic. And so it's, it's about time, I think, for me to move on. I've been thinking of going for a more bite-sized output rather than 30-minute you know, long podcasts, which require a good bit of work. And so... I think I will be transitioning to something a little less involved, but of course, uh, leaving open the possibility for an occasional new podcast episode. And by the way, you should see what I look like right now. It's kind of ridiculous. My wife took away all our USB microphones so that she can use them in her drama class. And so I am speaking into a webcam that is mounted on top of our large TV. So I'm kind of, my head's tilted up. And I'm standing right by the TV. Pretty crazy. Anyway, <laughs> on to our first piece today, the movie Wrist Cutters, A Love Story. This movie stars Patrick Fugit, who I'm a little bit, I've been a little obsessed with lately. His last name, Fugit, I wonder if that's like from the Latin aphorism Tempus Fugit, which means time flies. So like Patrick flies. Uh, anyhow, he was the kid from Almost Famous. And then he was also in this show called Outcast, which was about demon position. The main conceit of wrist cutters for our purposes is that most of the movie takes place in the afterlife. 
Specifically, it is the afterlife where people who commit suicide go. The idea that there is a whole separate place for people uh, who've committed suicide is straight out of Dante's Inferno. And of course, Dante held mostly to the ethical constrictions of his age and thought suicide was quite a bad thing to do and that you were punished for it even after you just killed yourself, which is pretty wild. But then traditional morality has a lot of this crazy idea that you shouldn't do this really bad thing because it's really bad for you. But if you do it, not only is it bad for you, you get extra punished for it. Uh, luckily, we're now in a much more compassionate place, I think, when it comes to assessing the morality of suicide. But even Risk Cutters, which generally doesn't have that kind of oversimplified, cruel take on killing yourself, still portrays an afterlife for suiciders that's pretty bleak. But I don't have a huge problem with that bleakness because I don't see it as much as they're being punished for the act, more like they still have some psychological processing to do, even after dying. It's a bit like that idea some people float that in the same way your setting and mindset affect your experience of psychedelics, that the afterlife is probably that too. That is some manifestation of your own ideas about the afterlife. Um, of course, like most any theory about the afterlife, there's no particular reason to believe this is true, but there's still something I appreciate about such a view when compared to some of the other common ideas about what the afterlife life is like. At least in Wrist Cutter's world, heaven or hell is not some sort of carrot or stick punishment or reward. It's just an extension of your own actions and the processing of those actions. I mean, do we really need infernal punishment or divine reward to sell the idea that there is a price to our actions? I suppose in some contexts, sure, maybe. Explicit punishment and reward was more how you manage children or otherwise less than fully formed people. It's how you control the uneducated masses, so to speak. But even today, we're seeing a push toward not doing that with kids either, uh, with giving them the space to learn about actions and consequences. So why do some people still insist that we must rule by fear, that is, by the stick and carrot, which is a kind of bribery? And I guess because people have a hard time understanding that it's possible to be motivated for reasons outside of that which is strictly practical. Our main character in Risk Cutters ends up in the suicide afterlife and he adopts a lifestyle probably not too different from his lifestyle when he was a living person. But then a lawyer who has committed suicide shows up and tells him that his girlfriend should be here too now because shortly after the main character killed himself, so did she. I think that's a pretty clever way of penetrating the life-afterlife communication barrier or really any communi communication barrier for that matter. So, for example, many shows or movies uh, fail at doing that. Like, you often find yourself asking questions like, why didn't that dude just call him and warn him? Or why didn't they send uh, a message in some way uh, that is that would have significantly changed the flow of the plot? An explicit example is if anyone's watching the new populist drivel fantasy Netflix show Shadow and Bone, that show has this problem too. Uh, there's a big wall basically in the show and they don't really demonstrate how that wall is a problem and they don't really talk about what seem to be easy ways to circumvent that wall, like, you know, catapulting a, a rock with a message on it or you know, something in that fashion seems like most of the historical walls are uh, maligned, like the Berlin Wall or Hadrian's Wall. 
that wall in Israel that Banksy vandalized, the wall at the southern U.S. border, etc., etc. Well, I guess people think the Great Wall of China is pretty cool. Mm. But then there's a ton of bones in those walls. But, um, that's also why it's easier to make a period piece that takes place before cell phones. So you don't have to worry about that those plot holes surrounding failed communication. Uh, and so our main character spends the rest of the movie looking for his ex in the suicide world, but realizes he loves another. And the ending is very sweet and not cloying, in my opinion. Um, what else? Uh, oh, there's a cool bit about a person who committed suicide who's from the prehistoric era, and she has this great humming vocal throat singing performance that uh, I also heard in the show Devs. Like, they utilize that in uh, one of the episodes of Devs, uh, which was the subject of a prior episode. Uh, throat singing and humming, thumbs up. Uh, a lot of nice actors you'll recognize in the movie as well. Will Arnett and Tom Waits actually acts in it as well. Outside of the afterlife stuff, I really liked Wrist Cutters for its independent spirit. It really reeks of late 90s crunchy indie feelings, which is lovely. And the director is a relatively unknown person, I think a Belarusian artist who was personally authorized by the author of the Wrist Cutters short story to make this movie. And he beat out a bunch of more boring corporate filmmakers who wanted to make a blockbuster a piece of shit like What Dreams May Come. So I celebrate the existence of this movie if only because it's a case of the little guy winning out to make something individual and meaningful rather than going for what would make everyone a bunch of money. Just want to reiterate, I do very much recommend this movie. Okay, so moving on to Lincoln and the Bardo. Um, wow, I'll just get it out of the way and say this is one of my favorite novels. It's a near-perfect touch on grief, humanity, and the afterlife. In previous episodes, when I rant about the shortcomings of other afterlife media, I'm always thinking of Lincoln and the Bardo because it just outpaces everything else. The author, uh, as I said, is George Saunders, and it concerns the world of spirits and a new spirit on the block, uh, that of Willie Lincoln, the second of Lincoln's sons to die early. Plot-wise, it's a bunch of ghosts hanging out before going on to whatever's next, uh, so a sort of purgatory, I suppose. But as you learn more about these ghosts and their lives when they were living, the mechanics of the afterlife really shine. Oddly, I'm having trouble distilling the book, and, and maybe that's the point. The afterlife in the book is so peculiar that it defies the kind of schematic description we can use for, say, the circles of, of hell in Dante's Inferno, or divided up nicely like, a, like an office bureaucracy or something like that. A lot of the portrayals of the afterlife we've discussed involve uh, familiar environments. And as I went to list out all the pieces I've discussed in previous episodes and how they use everyday environments in the afterlife, I realized that every single one of them, except for perhaps the house that Jack built, does this. And I guess technically the insane clown posse's uh, mythos, um, but that's a little different because it's music. Right, anyway, I would theorize that this is mainly due to budgetary concerns, meaning it's a lot cheaper to show that the afterlife is just a drearier version of our known reality than something entirely different. And I also think, I mentioned before that hell has taken on a more psychological meaning in the modern era, and less of a physical meaning. There are plenty of people, of course, who still think it's a pit of fire, but that view is, in my estimation, always diminishing in prominence in this new secular world. 
In fact, accounts of near-death experience actually change as you progress through history. Uh, the experiences adopt whatever cultural impression of the afterlife is in vogue at the time of the experience. So who knows what our near-death experiences will be like in the future uh, as our ideas evolve. To me, Lincoln and the Bardo, as any great work or concept will events, defies easy description and is best explicated by what it's not. It's not like a lot of the afterlife stories we're familiar with. It's its own thing. The idea is pretty that there is a kind of purgatory and that the way you lived influences the way you exist as a spirit is a pretty common idea, but the details of this purgatory and these spirits are unlike most accounts I've experienced. So highly, highly recommended, but it's pretty weird, so take that as you will. Uh, I heard the audiobook version actually features like 20 different celebrity voice actors because there are a lot of different spirits and narrative voices in the book. I've actually heard that that makes it harder to grasp, so apparently one should read the book instead of listening to it. I mean, in general, I'm not opposed to referring to listening to audiobooks as quote-unquote reading. I'm just saying in this case I've heard bad things about the audio, even though it sounds fun with all the celebs. Uh, funny, though, that I have so little to say about one of the best pieces on this podcast. Oh, well, I guess that means you'll have to go out and read it. But I guess I can say a few things about how Lincoln and the Bardo compares to Risk Cutters. They both feature what seems to be a transitionary afterlife experience. Uh, both feature afterlives that I'd say are relatively unusual, uh, Lincoln more so. But then I think that's why I chose Risk Cutters as the companion piece here. Lincoln does it better, but Risk Cutters has a lot of the same things going for it. And nothing too concrete, uh, as we've discussed, being too literal and consequential about the afterlife, you know, ruins things. And uh, a lot of strange stuff to unravel is in both pieces, and also uh, a kind of optimism that you often find in movies about the afterlife, well, movies in any media, that is. It's funny, I, I haven't talked about many, if any, pieces that portray the afterlife as fully horrible without any aspect of redemption. It seems weird to me that there isn't a lot of material like that, like, assuming, you know, I've not just been biased in my selection, especially because I tend to be drawn to material that isn't afraid to go dark. But, well, next week when I talk about Hellraiser, that'll be a different kind of thing. Uh, pretty dark, I'd say. Not much redemption. All right, on to Toots and Boots, my recommendation and anti-recommendation section. I decided to do kind of an Oscars theme this time. I know it's been I don't know, maybe a month since the Oscars, but as I said, everything's been delayed for me. So the uh, picture, the best picture winner, Nomadland, I thought was excellent. Uh, Sound of Metal, which I think won for best actor, Riz Ahmed, I think, was also very good. At the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that I spent the vast majority of my free time consuming media, and that feeds right into how much I'm interested in the Oscars, since generally only people who are over-serious about art film, and I mean film, not movies, get as excited as I do about the Oscars. Also, I apologize for making the film-movie distinction a second ago. I, I try not to do that much, but in the context of the Oscars, I thought it would be illustrative. I also don't like that people call comics graphic novels. I mean, they're comics. Uh, stop feeling bad about reading comics. These days, any decent person is thinking a bit more about what kinds of privilege they enjoy. But I've been thinking a lot about 
the many kinds of privilege I enjoy as a result of my gender, race, and socioeconomic status. But one that I don't hear a lot of explicit talk about is the privilege of having enough time to consume media and develop a taste for it, similar to the concept of having a room of one's own. And as much as I harangue people who are only interested in entertaining distractions, it is of course true that the less time you have to devote to media, the less likely you'll develop a taste. And it would be un incredibly unfair for me to pass my trademark judgment on a child, uh, although I reserve the right to pass judgment on adult children, but also the, the underserved who have to worry about more immediate things like what they're going to eat than, you know, good films. It is strange, or it seems unfortunate to me that a lot of my hobbies that kind of slant in, I guess, a more refined direction kind of carry with them an implicit privilege. I mean, I think that applies to a lot of things like food or music. You know, often to get the best quality, you have to have enough money uh, or have enough privilege. And I guess I'm just trying to say that I realize not everyone has time to do this thing of mine. And that's okay, because this podcast is mostly for the uh, two people who do have that time. Um, there are plenty of shows that fill that less arrogant kind of criticism, uh, I think. So anyway, time for Boots. Minari. Uh, you might be surprised that I didn't absolutely love the movie Minari because it's about Korean people, but I thought it was overrated. Uh, also, Bastard stole some of my ideas. Kidding, kind of. Minari is in many ways well made, but it's so intent on hitting the milestones of an immigrant experience movie that it feels oddly generic. I mean, there's a lot of uh, cultural references and Korean stuff, but it just feels a little too paint by numbers. And there's also this theme about uh, running. There's like a metaphor about running that I thought was botched pretty bad. And, you know, compare Minari to something like Sound of Metal or Nomadland and it's no contest. I also think it's really funny how people are running around saying Minari. Uh, which is the you know, Korean pronunciation of that word, sort of like how people say Barcelona. I don't really care, but, you know, to each his own. Okay, so as I mentioned, next episode will be the last of Got Complex, and I'll be talking about Hellraiser by Clive Barker. I intend to talk about the typical afterlife stuff a bit, but also I wanted to talk about horror in general, because I sense that horror is having a bit of a moment you know, in the last 10 years or something like that. And it's um, it's a unique vehicle for, for narrative, I think, but more on that next time. As always, uh, thank you for listening. And may we have gratitude for what we have and always will have and transcendent wonder for what we believe is lost. Talk to you later.